As the world has been rocked by the coronavirus, some things about artificial intelligence are going to stay the same. Namely, many of the barriers to adoption and AI deployment are going to stay the same. We will continue to cover them here on the show. Many of the AI use cases will stay the same. Of course, many new ones will develop, and some will develop in direct response to some of the needs from the coronavirus, so we'll cover those as well. What's changing for almost everyone is strategy. Whether you're a small company or a big one, your technology and your AI strategy are evolving quickly in the face of drastically different economic conditions. This week, we have Joel Minnick on the program. Joel is head of marketing for artificial intelligence and machine learning at Amazon Web Services. Amazon, obviously, one of the gargantuan giant players in the artificial intelligence space. We like to talk to VCs, we like to talk to startups, and we like to talk to the big players. Amazon certainly fits the bill. Joel breaks down this week some of his critical thoughts around what strategy looks like when it's done right. If your firm is just getting started with thinking about AI strategy, consider downloading our Beginning with AI free PDF guide. You can download that at emerj.com slash beg1. That's beg like beginning, emerge.com slash beg1. Without further ado, we're going to hop right into this excellent episode with Joel from Amazon here on the AI in Business podcast. So, Joel, I figured we'd kick things off by asking the pivotal question of this series, which is, how can AI be used as a competitive advantage in business? How do you like to think about this and help business leaders understand? Yeah. You know, I think um, we're looking at a a big shift in technology with the advent of machine learning and AI. And why that's true is because the, the surface area for which we think about problems where AI can have an impact is so large. And... We can kind of see that in problems that companies can face externally into the market, as well as problems they can solve internally as well. And some examples of that, if we think about how customers are using AI externally, there's a few customers that come to mind that I think are really doing some interesting things. One is really thinking about how can I use artificial intelligence to drive better customer engagement? And one of, I think, the most fascinating examples of this that really kind of proves that Machine learning and artificial intelligence are are really in the mainstream now. It is what the NFL is doing around thinking about how do they evolve the game of football. And so I'm sure folks uh, are largely aware the National Football League is one of the most popular programs out there. In fact, in 2018, they were averaging about 16 million viewers per game. And it's a very long and storied sports franchise, actually more than 100 years old. And as they thought about this experience and as the viewers of the sport change and the viewers of the sport become more technologically savvy, what do they begin to to want to see out of broadcasts? And so the NFL has partnered with AWS pretty extensively around understanding how do they bring fans deeper into the game? And so through uh, next-gen stats with the NFL, We've been able to work on models that now help fans get deeper into the game and understand what's really happening out on the field. Um, And one of the first models that we've released to help fans start to get that that insight is pass completion probability and really helping fans understand when when a quarterback is making a decision around which receiver they're going to throw the ball to, what is the the actual likelihood of that catch being successful? 
And it's driven some really interesting dialogue now about what's happening on the field around, you know, was this a really risky throw? And is the the capabilities of that quarterback and that receiver really at the top of their game? And when you're looking at a, a pass that's completed, that only had a 13% chance to be caught. And then, you know, kind of transitioning into looking at how you can start to solve problems internally as well. The NFL has recently made a a large announcement, uh, again, in partnership with AWS around how the two organizations are now working together to begin to address player safety and how can machine learning and understanding what's happening on the field begin to impact how we keep players more safe in the game. Another, I think, place where companies are thinking about competitive advantage is also in how do they begin to service their customers better? personalization is one that's really kind of coming up to the top now in thinking about, am I really beginning to look at my customers as individual customers, not as cohorts, not as market segments, but understanding each individual customer and what their preferences are. And machine learning has been a, a big driver of being able to start to do that. Another place where we're seeing this is in also being able to affect time to market. A really interesting place where this gets applied now is how do you have human beings and machine learning working together to get products to market faster? And there's a really interesting vein of of artificial intelligence that's now being uh, explored called generative AI, where you're using AI to actually create new things. Yeah, yeah. Typically think about it in just making predictions on on existing data. And I think one of the uh, really kind of interesting ways that this has been done uh, actually is with a partnership that was happening between Autodesk and NASA JPL. And NASA's in the process right now of building a new rover that's going to go and explore, search for signs of life uh, in the moons of Jupiter and Saturn. Now, as you can expect, this is a very long journey. It's a very perilous journey to get a rover out that far into the solar system. And if you think about any typical product design, in this case, a a very specific product design, as you're going through that engineering process, you often, you have to come up with a set of criteria that that product needs to satisfy. Now, in NASA's case, the way that this would often work is you would go through a conceptualization phase, you would narrow that down to a set of prototypes, and then narrow that down into a final design. And as you go through each one of those stages, I would think anyone in manufacturing will tell you, you start to make trade-offs and you start to have to say, well, this factor is not quite as important as this factor. And so I'm going to, I'm going to allow us to not quite meet the requirement there as long as we optimize this one over here. Yeah. And that process is slow and it's expensive. And you ultimately end up with an outcome that is kind of what you wanted, but not entirely what you wanted. With generative AI, what NASA and Autodesk were able to do is have human beings and AI work together to come up with completely new designs for how to think about rovers. And I think what's really fascinating about that is not only did generative AI let them get to an outcome that was materially shorter and less expensive than the traditional engineering design process, but they were also able to satisfy every requirement they had for this rover. And they didn't have to make the kind of traditional trade-offs that they typically would have had to do in in previous builds. And so I think uh, from a manufacturing standpoint, that really starts to allow companies to think about building some really innovative new kinds of products to bring to customers because AI is able to see things that we've not seen before. Um, And we're able to apply human judgment to those decisions 
to make sure that we're ending up with the best possible outcome. Yeah, I, I really wonder, Joel, what the world would be like when uh, generative AI is, you know, a third of as popular as as just, I guess, what we could call par for the course use cases of machine learning. It's like mm-hmm. a kind of an entirely different, interesting wave. I'm going to touch on a couple of the points you mentioned because I think these are some yeah. some neat ones that could really extrapolate into competitive Intel for for the audience and have them kind of think about their own advantage. And the first is around personalization. I mean, Amazon. Uh, obviously, you guys provide tools, and many folks are familiar with that. I think a lot of people know Amazon as kind of the the king of kings at personalization in terms of really customized experiences. You know, I think to myself, there might be two different kinds of worlds. There's there's kind of a, a way of leveling up your personalization that that kind of is like par for the course. Like everybody else is also sort of getting better recommendations, better email promotions, better sort of on-site experience after you log in based on your previous activity. Then there's another space where we really can start to pull away from the competition and form kind of like a like a moat. So I, I could see personalization being kind of the, the incremental if everybody starts to kind of do it in a similar way. But there might also be ways to to maybe do it with particular kinds of data or very narrow kind of product sets where it really could could spin off into a more sustained advantage. Do you have any thoughts there about, about how to leverage it in maybe the biggest way that one could? Well, I think one of the f- most fascinating ways to think about personalization is not necessarily in the reactive personalization that we often see a lot of today, as you mentioned, but beginning to think about personalization from a proactive standpoint. And what we've seen with this is customers who I've seen it both in retail as well as in food service and delivery, where folks are starting now to think about what kind of offers, what kind of notifications do I send customers based on what I'm learning about their habits and what I'm learning about what they like to do and how they like to engage. And so if I know that a given customer is a football fan, what I want to do then is deliver a notification to their phone about an hour before the game with an offer for their favorite pizza at 30% off and begin to anticipate what my customer is going to need based on what I know about them and, and the quality of the models I can build around that. To not necessarily now have to just rely on the customer coming to my site or to my storefront before I can engage with them, but now being able to get out there with them when they're in the moment and the activities that they're doing and bring to them the kinds of services or the kinds of goods that I believe they're going to need. Got it. So you're saying kind of expanding beyond the when they do X, we do Y thing and thinking about, well, what might they respond to now or how does this event affect what might matter to them and then being able to kind of reach out at those times. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Got it. Um, and, and do you think that in a space like, let's say, pizza delivery, you know, if we're talking mm-hmm. about Domino's here, who seems to be kind of ahead of the game when it comes to adoption of, of tech, you know, in, in their little domain, do you see the potential to create a wide moat? In other words, if somebody can crack personalization really hard within their mm-hmm. space, like let's say something like pizza, they're winning that deal before the person knows they're hungry around football season or whatever. They are getting way better cart values because they implement sort of recommendation systems and and more productive kind of workflows for ordering online than their competitors earlier on to the point where now they're they're more convenient maybe they have more on the bottom line they can reinvest in that and they can kind of spin that flywheel to the point where now more people use them and now of course they have more data and they can spin even farther ahead potentially their competition could things like that in personalization i'm not going to say like monopoly but could a, a really sustained wide advantage from spinning that data flywheel be gained across almost any niche in personalization or are there 
kind of bounding boxes people might think about? Well, I mean, I think you're you're onto something that we talk to customers about quite a bit, and I wouldn't even bound it to personalization. The important thing that uh, I talk to a lot of customers about in machine learning is it's exponential. And when you're moving forward with machine learning, the rate at which you can learn has a direct impact on the amount of competitive advantage you're going to gain from machine learning. And that's why, as we talked with customers about kind of what is the role in machine learning in their business right now, um, it is really important that they start thinking about it today. Because waiting a year, waiting two years, waiting three years before you decide that's when we're going to invest in machine learning, it's not a linear lag between competitors who have started investing in it. It's much more of an exponential lag because it's all that much more data, all that much more model refinement that they've been able to do. And therefore, they're that much smarter than other competitors in the market about in whatever niche of machine learning they've chosen to apply uh, than their competitors are. And so that's, that's a big reason why as you're thinking about machine learning strategies today, it is very important that it's a strategy for today and not something that's part of a three-year or five-year plan for where technology investments are going to go for your organization. Huh. Now, I, I want to get into our second question for this interview, but what you just mentioned was kind of interesting. You, you're sort of putting your foot down that the AI strategy for today has to be for today. I think there is a take where a lot of these technologies will take quite a bit to be able to enable in terms of data infrastructure and talent and whatnot. And we, we really do need to consider a plan that has phases potentially in some cases and whatnot. But you're you're really putting your foot down around, you know, a focus on the the near term. And I think there's there's some importance there. Why do you emphasize it so much? And and where do you think people go wrong with that kind of thinking? Because I I've actually uh I haven't heard anybody put it that way. Well, we emphasize it so much because of this learning factor that waiting to get started is something that is going to have a lasting impact on the pace at which your models are able to learn versus somebody else's. The other big reason that uh, we talk quite a bit about this as well is that I think there's still a tendency at times for folks who haven't yet made investments into machine learning to have a bit of a futurist mindset around the technology and that it can be perceived as something that is new and emerging and we should pay attention to it, but it might not be something we have to do right now. Yeah. And some of that is true. It it is an emerging field and there's a lot of new advancements happening. It's moving very quickly. But what's not true is that folks are waiting and that there are tens of thousands of organizations who are in production with machine learning or building machine learning models on AWS today. And that's happening globally across any industry, any geo. They're making investments and it's happening at the enterprise level and it's happening at the startup level. And so to think that people aren't yet making big investments into this can be a bit of a a false conclusion in thinking about where technology investments are happening right now. Got it. Okay. So maybe a point for people to sort of double down on. I think that, and obviously as a vendor, you guys have some degree of, a, of an interest in people sort of being ardently antsy about adopting today. But I think there's also a lot of credence to that point where, you know, you wait too long, the 
disadvantages, as you had mentioned, can be exponential, just like the advantages could be. And there's credence to that point as well. The second and last question here, Joel, and we can be somewhat swift on this one, but I think that your take on this will be will be interesting, is really about how leaders can think about getting to that advantage today. You know, I'm thinking about companies who maybe they're they're a big, you know, four billion dollar enterprise, but they don't have a gargantuan data science staff. They were started 80 years ago. Digital is not necessarily in their blood. They're you know, there's still some paper flying around in the office, but they'd like to do what they could do. You know, they're not going to snap and have an Amazon type workforce tomorrow, but you know, they want to inch closer to getting that competitive advantage. What do you often advise folks to do? Or, or what do you feel like are the smart moves for companies that, you know, maybe we could call them stodgy, but they're definitely ambitious. You know, where do folks start, even if they can't enact everything today? Yeah, well, I think there's two big pieces to this. And the first one would be thinking about what kind of moves do you want to make into machine learning? And when we set out to uh, really begin to invest in building machine learning services for customers, we very early on said, our mission is to put machine learning in the hands of every developer. And so it wasn't just to go and serve data scientists, folks with PhDs in math who know a lot about how to go and do this. And so the way that we did that was we thought carefully about what kinds of services we wanted to build. And they fell into three layers of a stack. And at the bottom layers, where we often talk about frameworks and infrastructure and speak very much to existing data scientists who are very familiar with the technology and familiar with managing the kinds of infrastructure that go into machine learning. At the second layer of the stack is where we then invested in building tools that data scientists and ML engineers would want to use to get to their models faster without having to worry about managing all the infrastructure. And Amazon SageMaker is the service that most uh, comes through there. But then I think in answer to your question about if you don't have a lot of this expertise, how do I still and go get started? This is where we've made a lot of investments into this top layer of the stack that we call our AI services. And these services are built around being able to offer customers different machine learning capabilities. So forecasting, personalization, text-to-speech, computer vision, fraud detection. But the service handles the science for you. And so as a customer, what you need to understand is your data um, and be able to bring that data to the service. And then you have to really understand your applications, which you do understand. And the service handles doing the data science in the middle and making the predictions on the data. And that's been a way that for customers who don't yet have deep expertise in machine learning across their organization to still be able to go out and implement these kinds of functionality, uh, these kinds of machine learning functionality into their applications, into their business, and begin to see those rewards in how they service their customers. Got it. So sort of an initial step might be, hey, start to leverage some of the more accessible, you know, APIs and sort of higher level frameworks that maybe will let you work on some of those NLP problems, maybe work on that search application or that little computer vision use case without, you know, getting yourself four PhDs from Carnegie Mellon to get it done. Exactly. And of course, people are going to have to upgrade their skills as well. Their in-house talent is going to have to evolve. I don't think AutoML will take a whole enterprise uh, to level up. But I am definitely excited to see how Amazon and the other players in that space can make this stuff more accessible because you're, you're, you folks over there must be more familiar with I about just how big the accessibility gap is. And it'll be cool to see those 
those tools develop. So hopefully some of that stuff is useful for the folks tuned in. I know that's all we had for time on this particular interview, Joel, but I sincerely appreciate you sharing your insights here on AI and industry. Thank you. I appreciate the time. So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. I should mention, I didn't say it in the introduction, since the time of that recording, Joel has since moved to Databricks. It was actually quite a recent interview, but Joel is now with Databricks from his role at Amazon Web Services. If you've enjoyed the show, then be sure to stay tuned with us and be with us here next Tuesday in the next episode of the AI in Business Podcast. And also consider following us on social. It's at E-M-E-R-J on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. If you want to see our latest interview, Reviews, of course, from this show. We also have another podcast called the AI and Financial Services Podcast. You might want to look that up on iTunes as well. You'll see both of those come out live on social as soon as they're published, in addition to our other research reports and insights. We cover different industries. We cover AI at gigantic banks. We cover AI in the military, all kinds of new use cases and interesting strategies and tactics that you can use in your business. And you can follow that full feed when you follow us on social. It's just at E-M-E-R-J. You can follow us at LinkedIn as well. So hopefully you've enjoyed the show this week. I'll catch you next week on the AI and Business Podcast.